Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio and a very happy Mother's Day weekend to all the glorious moms who nurture us, love us and feed us. We thank you. And a shout out to my mom, my first and always mentor and the most spectacular radio producer this show has ever had. Thank you for being an amazing mom and happy Mother's Day. Every Sunday on this show, we continue our celebration of food and the role it plays in our lives. So tune in to explore what feeds your soul, the culture, the science, the history, the backstories, the deeper meanings that come together every time people sit down to enjoy a meal. This is a place for people who love to eat, and it's my goal to make your dishes come alive with flavor. I talk food, health, wellness, wine, cocktails, trends, tech, fitness, and more to fuel your hunger and satiate your soul. So stay tuned because there is delicious conversation in your radio throughout this hour. If you happen to have missed a show, you can find podcasts on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen, and my website at chefjamie.com will make you a better cook. I do hope you'll follow me as well on social at Chef Jamie Gwen, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. And with that said, let's dig in. Okay, it's time for gazpacho, that is. When the weather warms, gazpacho feels right to me. And I have a love affair with gazpacho. Maybe it's because I was raised on it or because it's a blank slate for a palette of flavors. You top it with chili grilled shrimp or brioche croutons or a spoonful of burrata and you have a meal. Now, gazpacho is the soup for cooks who don't like recipes. It's the cold Spanish classic that's traditionally made with ripe tomatoes, and it's very adaptable, and it screams spring and summer. And there is, of course, an an Andalusian gazpacho made with um, bread and almonds and copious amounts of garlic. It's a white gazpacho that I love, too, uh, but more on that to come. The red gazpacho is a very simple technique that takes just minutes. And maybe you have a signature recipe or you want to elevate elevate rather the flavors of your gazpacho. Uh, you can serve it in a multitude of ways. So it's the perfect starter in a shot glass. You can actually spike it with tequila or vodka and it's very delicious. It makes a really nice main course for warm summer nights. And it's more of a drink than a soup. Red gazpacho is everywhere in Seville, Spain, by the way, where the recipe stems from. But there it's not the watered down sort of salsa, grainy vegetable puree that we know it to be here in the U.S. In Spain, it often has bread added for viscosity. And it's a creamy, orangey pink color rather than lipstick red because they add it huge quantities of olive oil, which really is necessary and required for making delicious gazpacho rather than take it or leave it gazpacho. So remember, olive oil is your friend when it comes to the ultimate gazpacho. Now it's an emulsion of red tomato juice, pale green cucumber juice, golden olive oil, and other aromatics of your choice to get that 
perfect color, that smooth, almost fluffy texture. So let's make a batch, shall we? The base of great gazpacho starts with epic tomatoes. Because this preparation is raw, there is really no hiding a substandard specimen of tomato. Juicy, ripe, summer, vine-ripened, perfect tomatoes are ideal, and they are a tried-and-true base. But you can substitute canned tomatoes, and I recommend that you use the ultra-pure Roma tomatoes that are in puree. You want the all-natural version, just tomatoes in puree as the base. Now, for accents to your gazpacho, I like soft herbs like basil and mint and parsley and cilantro. I think they're all welcome. And there's a place for a little bit of heat, maybe a little bit of fresh chili if you like. Uh, Finely chopped garlic can also be added or tossed in. Um, Adding an acidic element is essential and it brightens the soup like sherry vinegar is the main go-to. But other vinegars work nicely too, as does lemon juice or lime juice. And I have chef friends that add a splash of hot sauce and they'll make a spicy gazpacho if that suits your palate. Now, when it comes to texture with gazpacho, as with peanut butter, there are two camps. There's chunky and smooth. And it can be rustic and chunky or smooth and elegant. And if you like texture and chunk, then you use a food processor or you make the gazpacho by hand where you, um, you know, happily and laboriously, uh, hand dice all of the vegetables and blend them by hand, uh, fold them into the tomato base. Um, I happen to like my gazpacho both smooth and chunky. So I start with the blender. It's the best tool for the job. And if you know me um, and love me or listen to this show, you know that I love my blender. And so I start the base in the blender and the base uh, I'll tell you about in my recipe is Uh, based in tomato goodness, and then other vegetables are added in. And then I sort of split the job half and half, and I'll dice vegetables to add the texture, the crunch, the chunk. Now, if you like body in your gazpacho, this is the way that you'll do it. You reserve some of the vegetables and stir them in. For a thicker gazpacho, you add shards of rustic bread, or you can add a handful of raw almonds along with the vegetables and fruit to the blender. Um, And again, that good dose of quality olive oil adds the richness. And then as far as garnish is concerned, purists will opt for nothing but chilled tomato goodness. I love toppings, so consider a spoonful of ricotta cheese or crumbled fresh goat cheese. Oh, yes. Garlicky croutons, preferably brioche. Uh, Slices of crispy prosciutto that you've placed on a baking sheet with a silpat mat or parchment paper in the oven at 350 till they dry out and get crispy and you'll notice the color changes and then you take them out of the oven and you let them rest till they're completely cool and you can peel them off the silicone baking mat and you get what I call prosciutto croutons. Uh, Maybe some steamed clams or a crab claw or two. That sounds delicious, right? See gazpacho as a meal. So good. Now, as for the white gazpacho that I mentioned, that's an Andalusian gazpacho. And it's a classic cold white Spanish soup. I happen to love it as well. 
It is traditionally garnished with grapes. So you have this sweetness to offset what is a garlicky, creamy, lovely richness. You can use small cubes of watermelon at the height of summer. If you're serving a white gazpacho in the fall, apple is really tasty. And it's based in uh, stale or lightly toasted country bread uh, that you add water and slivered almonds, those that do not have the brown peel or exterior, the skin. You want to use the slivered because they've been skinned already. Uh, Garlic, uh, preferably a Spanish, you know, extra fruity, extra virgin olive oil. There's some sherry wine vinegar in there as well, and you season with salt and pepper. It's super simple, uh, but it too, like the red gazpacho, um, has one chef's secret you must not forget. The two gazpachos share something in common, and that is that they are better the next day, and maybe even the day after that. This is one of those basic recipes where the method uh, and the simple preparation lends itself only better to the fact that you have patience. So make your gazpacho the day before, red or white, and let it sit in the fridge and let it chill because it gets better over time. You might adjust the seasoning with salt and pepper before you serve, or like I said, a chili dry rubbed grilled shrimp on top adds big, bold flavor but it is just so delicious when you've allowed it time to sort of meld. Now, you can find a bevy of variations on gazpacho on my website, chefjamie.com. And I'd love to know how you make your gazpacho too. So email me, please, jamie at chefjamie.com. And please don't touch your dial. There's lots more delicious conversation coming up in your radio. Oh, yes, we're talking umami next. Adam Fleischman is here, and you know him from the Genius Umami Burger. There's a flavor bomb in your future. Plus, we're celebrating Tokyo's only female sushi master coming up later in the hour, and we're gardening with DIY Network's Sarah Bendrick. So don't touch your dial. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen, and we'll be right back. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We have incredible culinary thinkers on this show, so be glad you're here because you're in for a treat. My next guest has been coined the mad scientist of fast casual, but Adam Fleischman is not a chef or a restaurateur in the traditional sense. He's really a force to be reckoned with. His umami palette is the creative force behind Umami Burger and 800 Degrees Pizza. And with 40 locations around the world, he's built an empire. A renegade self-taught cook, Adam utilized the savory fifth dimension of taste to heighten flavor and create a craveable menu using ingredients that are naturally rich in umami. He created ultimate 
versions of icons like his umami burger with port and stilton and the signature parmesan fondue we all love and all of the recipes are made from the same umami pantry and shared in the much anticipated first cookbook release from adam fleischman entitled flavor bombs and let me tell you this book is the bomb and i am delighted that adam is here to dish it's been too long how are you adam i'm great jamie how are you (laughs) i'm well too thank you and i'm glad to have you here is there anything your kids eat that doesn't have umami dust in it you know my kids (laughs) um their favorite foods are burgers and pizza so yeah well they're your kids yeah (laughs) Yeah, and they were breastfed, which, you know, has eight times the umami of regular milk, so everyone's addicted from birth. Yeah, right, in in your family, for sure. Um, (laughs) um, Let's first have a discussion on umami, the word, the principle, the sense, the savory. Where is umami? I love the introduction and the prologue of the book, because you really dig deep. Yeah, so umami, um, you know, was the, the last flavor to be discovered after um, sweet, sour, salty, and bitter. And, you know, it's always had this mystique to it, and I was hoping to sort of demystify it and show people that, you know, you could use all these ingredients that that are high in glutamates if you know what they are, and you can sort of get away from using recipes so much because you can, you know, use these interchangeably in a lot of recipes to, Mm -hmm. to great effect. And they always make your food more flavorful. So everything in the book calls from that pantry and, uh, you know, that pantry has some things that are very familiar, like soy sauce, but maybe some things that are not so familiar, like koji or, um, you know, special kinds of mushrooms or truffles that are much more accessible nowadays. Yes. Um, things like that that are just very easy for the home cook to use, you know, to, to amp the recipes up. I love that you talk about glutamate-rich ingredients, some of which, like you just referenced, are things we wouldn't have thought of, like uh, in Italian food. Um, and you talk about the beauty of Italian cuisine and um, Japanese flavors, um, anchovies, serious umami, right? Um, yeah, anchovies. A lot of Italian chefs now are using um, fish sauce yes. a lot because that's an anchovy derivative. And even though it's it's uh, Asian, they still they still use it in their in their in their dishes. I actually very much believe in fish sauce. I happen to be an Asian food lover, but a drop or two gives you that. Can't put your finger on it, but man, that tastes good kind of flavor. Yep. Yeah, and you yep. just... It's pure glutamates and... Uh, don't know it's there. or flavor. Yeah, for sure. I know you're big on miso. Uh, yeah. Dried mushrooms, I I think that you probably uh, put them in the bath salt and you keep them in your pocket. Yep. My favorite ingredient, dried mushrooms. Yeah, no doubt. The best. The best. And then um, lots of nori and kombu and seaweed sort of uh, sea vegetable derivatives in your cooking. Definitely. Yes. Love all those things because they're, you know, they're subtle when they're used in, in, in judiciously. You can really um, put them in any dish and it really works really, really well. Yeah, but there's a richness to it. And I like that you talk about, you can't throw all the umami ingredients together in a dish, you say. Right. Like a burger is something that is, has a lot of umami, like a, like meat, but also something that's a neutral base, like a bun, or same with pizza, where you have the crust and then you have the umami sort of playing off it. Also, the um, you know, the perfect umami dish is sort of like a piece of nigiri sushi with tuna and rice, and just those two things, mm-hmm. but it works together. So it kind of bonds with its opposite and makes something more delicious. 
And in addition to the ingredients, you talk about techniques to amplify umami. So you can bring out the flavor of umami naturally. Definitely. There are certain things that just sort of react with umami. And one of my favorites is sherry wine, which is very popular in the bar these days. But Mm. man, it works so great in fondues or in my crab recipes or things where you want to really amplify the umami. You just put some of that dry sherry in there or sweet sherry, depending on the recipe, and it Mm. just blows it up. You heard it. The secret ingredient from Adam Fleischman, he's never without. By the way, if you've just tuned in, you're late because we're talking flavor bombs, the umami ingredients that make taste explode. The book is just set to release from Adam Fleischman of Umami Burger fame. And let's delve into the recipes, Adam. Could you please teach us to make burnt miso and explain why it is you're burning the miso itself? It's a one ingredient wonder. I love the ingredient list. It says miso as much as you want to (laughs) burn. Exactly. So miso is one of those things that has traditionally been used in Japanese food, but really works very, very well in sort of Italian and French dishes Mm -hmm. or any kind of braise. So I tend to, to use it a lot, but we realized that to sort of offset the pure umami nature of it, if you put it in your oven just, you know, on a silk pad or a piece of parchment paper and just burn it, then it, it adds another dimension to it. So we do a cocktail with burnt miso. We do, um, you know, we use it in lots of different things, and it just, it really is a versatile ingredient. I mean, at the end, at the end of the day, it's just soybeans, but there's different types of it. And, um, you know, soybeans are not something that the chef is going to grab at home all the time, but I think miso is something that's, readily available now everywhere and is, is well worth using. Definitely so. Did you come to this charred epiphany by accident, I wonder? Uh, no. No. Um, <laughs> Did, you were burning miso accident? by technique. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. I can't wait to I can't wait to try it. I will very much say I did not know that burnt miso was one of uh, your uh, secret ingredients in your arsenal. Uh, the creamy salad dressing that you make with mixed greens has all of my favorite things. So it has tahini and white miso and sherry vinegar and your master sauce and a little bit of lemon and water. And it's one of my favorite flavors from Umami Burger that that I know. You know, it's right. that craveable deliciousness. And most of the recipes, in fact, many of them include a couple of master recipes that you share in the book, which I was surprised and delighted by. Um, but talk to us about master dust and master sauce, please. So when we when we um, created Umami Burger, we didn't want to put things inside of the patty of the burger because, you know, those chemical reactions and over, you know, they could over season things. So traditionally, we kept them on top like salt and pepper would be. But we wanted a wet and a dry version that would really amplify it. So we came up with the dust, which is basically just ground up dried umami things, and the sauce, which is basically wet umami things. And we use those a lot in in different preparations. Um, The dust works really well on any kind of thing you would season, any kind of roast or, Mm. you know, it's just a really versatile thing to have in your kitchen. Flavor Bombs by Adam Fleischman, the man behind the Umami Burger Empire, uh, is the new cookbook soon to be available. Check it out and follow his umami journey at adam.fleischman on social. And stay tuned because there's lots more to please your palate. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Be right back.
We're back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio on a mission to find the most exciting places, new experiences, emerging trends, delicious dishes. Oh, and it talents. And let me tell you, this is the it girl of photography. Oh, yes. Andrea Fazzari's stunning images are known, respected, and cherished worldwide. And her close work alongside some of the top chefs of the world has allowed us a sneak peek into their lives and kitchens. Showcasing the new talent of Tokyo's vibrant food scene, Andrea profiles 31 chefs who are shaping the future of one of the world's most dynamic cities, no doubt, in a new book release that is astounding. It is a true work of art, and I can't wait for you to see it. It is a a fascinating and beautiful piece of work. Tokyo New Wave is a luxe collection that's filled with portraits and interviews and recipes, and it allows you to explore and touch and feel the changing landscape of food in Tokyo. It is the glorious work of photographer and writer, the much-loved Andrea Fazzari, and she is here to dish live from Tokyo. Welcome, Andrea. I'm so glad to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. Can you share your story of becoming a photographer, please? Because you took it from a passionate hobby to worldwide fame, and I really admire that. Thank you. Well, it happened in a sort of random way. It was a (laughs) hobby, as you just said. And I had been in fashion public relations and film public relations, and I just didn't feel that I was in the right place uh, career-wise. I felt it wasn't natural for me, um, and something was missing. I wanted a career that was perhaps more personal, and I really wanted to uh, work for myself. And I became a photographer essentially because my father fell ill in New York City when I was living in Paris at the time. And when I went to the ICU, uh, I couldn't believe what I saw and went home that night. And there was a travel and leisure magazine on my parents' coffee table in uh, one of the rooms in the apartment. And I picked it up and I remember thinking, wow, I could do this. I want to do this. And how serendipitous in so many ways, but I think a proof that you have to ask for, persevere, uh, fight for, and push for what you want. And the possibilities are endless. Yes, you follow your heart. Yes. And essentially, it was a potential tragedy when right. I was called back to New York. But I even, you know, in in a strange way, thank my father, even to Mm. this day, um, because if that hadn't happened in some strange way, I wouldn't be where I am today. So sometimes things that look very negative or onerous turn out with a positive side. Yes. And your life has been a glorious exploration. That's what I find so fascinating about your photography is I feel like it's a glimpse into these incredible experiences that you have uh, developed for yourself and that uh, you've really made happen. And, and they're so enriching for you and we get a taste of that. And, and I use that word intentionally because you're very connected to chefs and to food, but you're living in your fifth country uh, thus far, right? What is life like living in Tokyo? Well, Tokyo is extremely dynamic. It's fascinating beyond belief. I live in a sort of heightened reality here because as a 
as a foreigner, and I'll, I use that word with a bit of hesitation because technically I am a foreigner. However, I feel very connected and at home here. As I, as I say to many friends, it feels very familiar. Mm. Uh, I have been coming for uh, assignments and vacation and to visit family when they lived here many, many, many years ago. Um, but now I decided to make this move in 2015 because I had vowed to myself uh, in t- um, many years ago when I came the first time that I would leave, live here. I just found that I connected really quickly and deeply with how things are done uh, in a visual sense. I, I seem to understand something that's an intangible feeling about this place. Mm-hmm. Um, I find a lot of beauty here every day, and especially in the dining experience, there's so much detail and richness and texture that it's a, just an incredibly enticing life to have. Mm-hmm. And I find that my observation skills are put to such good use here, um, and I just feel quite alive at the end of the day. So mm-hmm. I'm so glad that I finally made it happen and I came. What an extraordinary thing to be able to say. I wonder if you see everything through a lens, like, you know, the way that you see it through a camera. I often do because I'm always thinking about light. Yes. And when I enter a space, I notice the light probably first. Hmm. Uh, and I do think sometimes, even if I don't have my camera with me, how would I shoot this? Sure. It's, it's a quick sort of <laughs> inner inner monologue that I have with myself. Quite fabulous. Um, Yes, but um, I there's a lot to admire here visually, and I'm also really proud to be writing a lot uh, now as well. And yes. To, to the writing portion of this book um, was extremely meaningful uh, in addition to the photography because I was able to, uh, you know, choose the words very carefully to express the feelings and, and emotions that I I have regularly here, and I wanted the world to know about it because, to me, it's a very warm uh, place. And I know for many people, especially uh, foreigners in the West, Japan can seem uh, enigmatic or cryptic or mysterious, hard to know. Yes. Uh, but I wanted to depict it in a very uh, warm, uh, very familiar way. And you've done that. You've brought us closer to it. And the book, let's talk about Tokyo New Wave. It feels that way. There is a very extraordinary gastronomic scene in Tokyo. And it is often described, and as you describe it, as young and old, right? There's this charismatic generation of chefs that are eyes wide open to the world and influences and they're active on social and they've embraced technology and, you know, the newness of our ever-changing world, but they still remain distinctly Japanese. And if you could, from a culinary standpoint, elaborate on the food scene for us. Well, it, there's so much within the food scene here. There are so many aspects of it. But in a broad sense, what you're saying there, which what you're highlighting from what I tried to put my finger on in the book, is this sense that this generation is much more international in, um, in how they function. They are much more open to the rest of the world. You know, I, I even think that the prior generation was much more insular, was much more um, sort of focused on, on Japan itself and only. And this generation is very, very curious about what other chefs are doing around the world, and they like to incorporate 
techniques and, and experiences and ideas from other chefs that they meet, and they love to do collaboration dinners mm. uh, with chefs. They love to travel to those countries, come back. They love to invite the chefs in turn to come here. Um, there's a, an excitement about um, finding new ingredients uh, and uh, seeing, you know, exploring that and what those ingredients can bring to their own dishes here. Um, but at the same time, the way they do this, their, their perspective is from a Japanese standpoint because clearly uh, all of them, uh, with the exception of one foreigner in the book, we're all uh, raised here uh, yes. in Japan, and so that gives them a certain way of being. Yes. I mean, it's just the way it is. Your photography is, it is, it's extraordinary. And from a gastronomic standpoint, I mean, I couldn't help but fall in love with your imagery. The book itself is a love letter to Japan, and it is, is very clearly your love letter. It is called Tokyo New Wave. It is a transporting cookbook. It is a coffee table book. It is an armchair travel guide. And it captures this moment in Japanese cuisine. And for any food lover, you must have it or give it or share it. Based in Tokyo, Andrea Fazari is a photographer and writer who specializes in portrait and travel and the culinary world. And you can view her... Uh, Amazing imagery at AndreaFazari, double Z, dot com. And then TokyoNewWave.com will give you insight into the book. And of course, please follow Andrea and her uh, incredible travels at Tokyo New Wave. Andrea, I would love an opportunity to meet you someday, but I will proudly keep your book uh, very visible in my home and share it and pay it forward. Thank you for the extraordinary work you share. Thank you. Thank you. Such a pleasure. We do bring great insight on this show, albeit culinary or otherwise. There is something to feed your soul every weekend, so don't touch your dial because there's lots more right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Don't go away. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. My food philosophy, flavor and freshness are paramount and ingredients count. So why not grow them yourselves? But do you hate your yard, but you love her show? Me too. Sarah Vendrick is a gardening expert with a passion and appreciation for beautiful living things like herbs and trees and flowers. She is the host of DIY Network shows, I Hate My Yard, and her new show called Lawn and Order, love the name, premieres this weekend. And she is here to share her best spring gardening tips. 
Hi, Sarah. I'm glad to have you. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, of course. It's such a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, thank you. Okay, so spring has sprung. It's time to tend to the garden. Um, From a food perspective, would you enlighten us, please, on what is best to grow in a backyard, veggie, herb, edible garden? Oh, absolutely. I mean, spring is so exciting because the cold weather is leaving, the warm sun is coming in. This is a great time for starting a vegetable garden. And depending on where you're living, that the different types of plants will vary a little bit from area to area, but there's mm-hmm. so many things that people can grow across the country, and you just kind of want to see what's happening locally. Growing something like corn is super easy to do. It grows a lot in the Midwest. So you no grow doubt. In the West as well, and many parts of the country. Uh, tomatoes are obviously a go-to. Who doesn't love good tomatoes and squashes and everything that you think you can grow in the backyard is really not all that difficult. You really just got to get started. Okay. So what is the most bountiful? Like for the novice gardener, where does one start? Well, for the novice gardener, if we want to take baby steps, and I do this with kids sometimes, is starting with sunflowers because Mm. they're really, the seeds are really large. You can see where you put them and you water them, you put them in the ground and they grow and they're so beautiful and they get quite large. So you can harvest the seeds, of course, um, for food, but those are really simple and they're really rewarding to grow. So that would be like entry-level gardening, in my opinion. Okay, good. And then a more elevated approach for the connoisseur. Uh, if, you, if you're looking to set your sights high, what is more challenging? What, what, what brings the, the most satisfaction? Yeah, I think doing an outdoor garden where you can do um, many different crops in a certain area, the mm-hmm. challenge is that each of the crops are going to need a little bit different care and spacing. So if you're able to bring in a few different types of vegetables, that's better than just doing, say, one type of vegetables, especially for, like, the insect balance and all that. Um, If you're really trying to get into having, like, a healthy garden, Mm -hmm. a lot of times people ignore the soil, which is the most important part. And I always try and encourage people to go the organic route and really um, encourage healthy soils because if you have healthy soils, your plants are so much stronger and you have better and more nutritious vegetables as well. Okay. I know that you teamed up recently with Sony Pictures to support Earth Day and the release of the movie Peter Rabbit, and you're getting kids involved. So I would love for you to share more about the project because gardening really can be a wonderful uh, family experience, right? Oh, yeah. I think it's incredible if you're able to spend quality time with the people that you love. And so for celebrating Peter Rabbit, the movie, we did build a community garden. It was a school garden in East Harlem, and we also did one in L.A. And what we did is we transformed a blacktop area into a vegetable garden. So we had volunteers come out. We had the Nature Conservancy was there. We had Slow Foods uh, USA was there. It was a great collaboration. The kids, they helped put the soil in. They helped plant it. And you could just see how excited they were to be part of this. And now they're able to, like, watch this process of planting the seed, watering it, watching it grow. And I think it really gives these kids a sense of confidence and connects them to the, the roots of where their food comes from instead of just going to the store and buying it. Yeah, there's something to be said for really understanding where it comes from. I think it builds such an appreciation and I think it builds palates. And that's what I'm all about, right? So we're talking about generations to come that appreciate the flavor of the ultimate tomato. Oh, yeah, definitely. Especially introducing kids into vegetable gardening. Yes. That, you know, most kids aren't like, they're not crazy about vegetables in general. But when they are able to take a hand in the process, it's not even about um, food anymore. It's about the experience. Right. And um, mm. Love it. so I, I think it's really, really worthwhile to get the kids for healthy eating, but also 
just because it's a, it teaches them responsibility and patience and yes. stuff like that, which are all important. And I love that you mentioned the blacktop because I think it proves that you can really plant a garden anywhere. Those were raised beds, I assume. I mean, if you took a, a wine box, because you know my world is food and wine, and you drilled mm-hmm. holes in the bottom, um, because I'm a little bit DIY, could you, yeah. could you do it just about any way? Oh my gosh, yeah, that's... A wine barrel would be so much fun. You, the drainage is important. Right. So making sure it's able to drain out. But, I mean, you can go as simple as buying a container and planting something, even using recycled materials. Like we use two-liter bottles, actually. We cut the top off and put drainage holes just to get the kids started in planting. And, I mean, you can you can start really in anything at a low cost. Yes. Um, so smart. So Love it. That, it's kind of it's kind of nice. Gardening on, on all levels. Now, I, my preference is outside in the soil. But, of course. You know, I think there's different levels that everybody can participate in. You can channel your creativity and create the outdoor living space you've always dreamed of with Sarah Bendrick's help, of course. Learn to do it yourself at sarahbendrick.com and follow her on social at Sarah Bendrick. Sarah, thank you again for sharing your passion. Come back um, when the seasons change, please, so that we can plant a new garden. Perfect. Oh, I would love to. Thanks so much for having me. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of inspiring culinary conversation. I do hope that you'll continue to tune in every weekend and find podcasts of shows you might have missed on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. You'll find recipes galore at chefjamie.com as well. And I'll leave you with my last bite for the hour. It's always a super simple, easy recipe. And I post it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. So what's your favorite way to eat oatmeal? How about a decadent yet good for you chocolate oatmeal recipe. Oh yes, it's like dessert for breakfast. This recipe actually started with my sweet tooth leading the way. I actually threw some chocolate chips into my morning oatmeal, but then I tweaked the recipe to make it healthy and delicious. So here goes. To make chocolate oatmeal, you need a half a cup of quick cooking rolled oats, three quarters of a cup of milk of your choice, an overripe banana, a couple of tablespoons of cocoa powder, a pinch of salt, and a dash of vanilla. You combine all the ingredients over medium-high heat. It takes about five minutes or so, and you stir it as it goes. Uh, Then I will say, uh, you can top it with just about anything, but it is decadent just that way. And my chocolate oatmeal recipe will once again be posted in no time on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I will meet you here next weekend for more fabulous food in your radio. I thank you for listening. Once again, a very happy Mother's Day weekend to all of the wonderful moms out there. And I hope you continue to eat well.